This is a HeadGum Podcast. While Andrew and Craig believe the joy of discovery is crucial to enjoying any well-told tale, they will not shy away from spoiling specific story beats when necessary. Plus, these are books you should have read by now. I need to apologize. Finally. I thought I forgot something last week. Do you know what last week was? Was it Valentine's Day? That occurred. But mm-hmm. last week's episode, I should have mentioned something and I forgot. Okay. What was it? I have no idea what you're talking about. One week ago was mm-hmm. our five-year anniversary Oh man, we both forgot. We both <laughs> forgot. Is that the forgetting anniversary? Because we I both think, forgot. Like, which of us is allowed to get mad at the other for forgetting <laughs> if we both forget? I would have presumed it would have been me, but I also forgot. <laughs> <laughs> well, happy anniversary, big boy. Happy anniversary, my man. Welcome to Overdue. It's a podcast about the books you've been meaning to read. My name is Craig. My name is Andrew, and apparently for five years, we have been bringing you the finest in amateur literature commentary. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Each week, one of us reads a book, and we talk to the other person about it. This week, I'm going to be telling Andrew about N.K. Jemison's, uh The Fifth Season, which is the first in the Broken Earth series of books that she's written. Um, Andrew, do you know what was going on in the world Five years ago? Five years ago in the year 2013? In well, a little book podcast, the little book podcast that everybody counted out was just taking its first shaky baby deer steps into the world. Uh-huh. Um, President Barack Hussein Obama had just won a second term in the White House. Uh-huh. Um, what else was happening in 2013? According to Wikipedia, in February 2013... Um, four things happened. <laughs> okay, just the four things. Just That's the good. four. That's not um, very many. There was an underground nuclear test in North Korea. Uh, okay, cool. A meteor exploded over Russia. Okay. Uh, s- somebody made a 3D printed ear. Oh man, this was back when 3D printing was this field of infinite possibility and not a way to like print a bad crappy coaster for your business <laughs> for your small business and I, which is I, what it is now i like to think that all three of these things just convinced benedict the 16th to resign as pope he was just like i can't i'm done we got underground nuclear tests we got a meteor exploding and like some printing is some happening dude made an ear come out of his computer i'm out i have to go be the only pope ever <laughs> In the history of popes, probably, to retire before he died. The first to do so since 1294. So there have been... That's a while. been a long-standing tradition of dying as... Po- oh, no, excuse me. 1415, but they forced that guy out. So, you know... Sure. Long- how many, like, <laughs> how many popes wanted to hang up the big hat and didn't because they did? They just didn't want to break the streak? They didn't want to be that... The Who wanted to break they Lou Gehrig's Pope streak? They didn't want to be the loser streak. pope. Yeah. 
they don't want to be the one who like makes the entire church like figure out what to do with just this loose pope that you got now like wild. rattle it around I in your pocket that happened man this extra pope yeah i was not so distracted from my new hit book podcast that i couldn't keep track of the pope all the different pope happenings you gotta keep track of that pope so let's talk about gotta have my popes <laughs> let's talk about uh the fifth <laughs> season which is a pretty popular book it uh it won the hugo award in 2016 it did and um nk jemison was the first uh black writer to ever win that particular award and then the year after in 2017 she did it again with the second one so <laughs> and the third so the this series it's the fifth season the obelisk gate and the stone sky which just yep. recently came out so it's a trilogy of fantasy novels yeah and like we don't always dig into an entire series for this show, and I don't know that, uh, you know, spoiler, I liked this book, but I don't know that we necessarily need to do that, but I am now, like, looking forward to the time of my life when I can carve out room for these books. If we were going to do a series, you would I be might, interested in, in I, doing Yeah, this I might nominate right. this Well, because I kind of want to read them, too, so, like, maybe we can Ooh. Um, Tell me a little bit about Jemison, if you got anything, Andrew. Nora K. Jemison was okay. born in 1972. She's a um, a fiction writer. She also does a she does a column called Otherworldly in the New York Times since uh, I think 2016. And um, she was born in Iowa, grew up in New York City and Alabama, um, received a BA in psychology from Tulane, and then later a Master of Education from uh, the University of Maryland College Park. And she was up until 2016 a you know a, a counseling psychologist by day, but a Patreon project that she launched um, eventually raised enough money to help her quit her day job. So she's just a writer now. Oh, cool. Um, yeah, like so she's she has written this trilogy. She has written some other some other stuff. The the thing while I was researching her that came up that I wanted to chat about a little bit in our in our current context was if you follow the Hugos at all or like the sci-fi and fantasy literature community around the same time that the Gamergate stuff was happening so if this if you have no context for this this is a um, if you have no context for Gamergate I who are you and how can I live your life I almost don't want Andrew to tell you (laughs) because it's such a bad part of the internet but you should know about it. So Andrew yeah, just so in, in um I in I want to say 2015 is when it sort of reached its its initial fever pitch. Um, there was this movement of people online who claimed to want there to be more like more ethics in game journalism. Like they they saw people who wrote about video games as on the take, on the take, like too close to the companies they speech. covered. And like, listen, there is a very there, there is a debate to be had about that. That is an actual debate because, and th- and that's true of any field of access journalism. Like I was yeah, in that, sure. I was in that realm until the very recent past. Like I totally get it. Like there are tons of sticky, like semi-ethical things that we could stand to talk. But about you know what in that isn't part of a healthy debate is like doxing and online harassment of prominent women in the field. Yeah, so that's that's what it purported to be, and then it it either was all along or eventually was co-opted by and just completely taken over by this this group of aggrieved white men who were pr- 
primarily upset that the industry was starting to be concerned at all with representation. Yeah. And that, that is on both the developer side and the reviewer side, like starting to call it out if, say, a game would only let you play as a male, like a white male character. If, if was, there were options and it completely lacked other representation also. yeah or yeah. if there was like any kind of of gay content at all like i know with mass effect like that was a big yep. thing because yep. you could you could be either a man or a woman you could and then you can you could be romantically involved with like any character that you wanted to be yep. pretty much um it was pretty cool yeah it was pretty cool but um i mean that that was pretty cool the, mass the game effect stuff yeah. was, was not but um so there's this sort of it's not an offshoot but it is it is happening at the same time and it is in response to a lot of the same things there is this group of people in um in the hugo community called either the sad puppies or the rabid puppies it was like a couple different uh, groups of people yeah and they i they basically saw the hugos they believe the hugos were being used to promote like one one person calls it message fiction, like heavy-handed message fiction, like basically elevating women and people of color because they because I don't know what whatever it is that makes people <laughs> upset about affirmative action, like whatever made up dumb stuff. Yeah, it, it's because I guess because equality feels like suppression if you're the person who you, has everything. Yeah, sure. <laughs> like, well, and it's not. Again, a, a different field. It is not dissimilar from folks who are upset by, uh, at, you know, questions about how Hollywood handles representation and how that's reflected in the award system. And you know, these debates are ongoing, and we're every year feels like we're making progress. Hopefully, fingers crossed. Um, Mostly, like but, most years. It's but a... folks like the sad puppies, rabbit puppies, idiots um, are a unfortunate byproduct of that progress again it's a group that purports to want something that sounds neutral so they say you know we we just want like good old sci-fi like fiction just some thrills and some chills and some spills but none (laughs) of this like none of your like feminist propaganda about like equality or whatever like you can't be trying to make a political point even though all art is so how does this get us uh to jemison so where this gets us to jemison is in um uh, 2015 or 2016, mm-hmm. I want to say, um, no, it was 2013. Sorry. Um, she was, um, speaking, um, to, uh, this, so there's this, this group called the science fiction and fantasy writers of America or SW SFWA. They had had a, an election for like the president of that organization and 10% of them had voted for, this uh, alt-right guy named Theodore Beale, who is also known as Vox Day. Um, and she delivered a speech basically saying, like, there there are the people who voted for this person. And he is, like, super racist, super sexist, like, literally believes that, that black people are inferior, like, can't build the same kind of civilizations that white people can build. Like, that that brand of of super, super obviously racist. yeah. Um, and so, so she gives this, this speech, like calling him a, um, uh, self-described misogynist, racist, anti-Semite, and a few other flavors of asshole. And, um, 
and excoriates both the people who voted for him and the people who would just like stand silently by while that movement like gains steam and and influence. And then he writes this post on his blog, which is still up and is very hard to read. I do not recommend that you seek it out. Calling her things like an ignorant half savage. Yeah. And then he he links this on the SWFA Twitter account and then gets himself removed from the organization. Yeah. I, I appreciate that this was this was her guest of honor speech at this convention. Like she did not waste time. <laughs> she used her platform appropriate appropriately. Right. Which I appreciate. Yeah. And it's just like it the the, the, the those puppies groups do seem to have receded in influence a little bit like they they their political aim i guess was to basically stack the like like game the vote for the hugos to yeah yeah to crowd out you know women and people of color like all the people who write the kinds of books that they feel threatened by like they feel again like as as with gamergate it's this is this reaction to people moving into what they perceive as their space sure and um, I believe in 2017, it's the the movement sort of showing signs of petering out. But that you know that doesn't mean that those people still aren't there, and they don't still believe those things. Like look around, just look around you at the moment that we live in, and and you you can see this kind of thing. But yeah, like I'm I'm I was happy to see Jemison like using her her platform. Like she's like like you said, you know, it's she didn't waste any time. And no. that's I think just really important symbolically from the first black writer to win the Hugo Award for Best Novel. Yeah, to to take a stand and also like believe and also in, just be a really good sci-fi writer. Yeah, and and also believe in the best of the community and not be afraid to call out the worst in the community. I think that's the the most that can be that's the least that can be expected from a lot of us and most of us don't even rise to that. So, yeah. Um, that's pretty know. cool. She also has a cat named King Ozymandias, which is pretty yes. dope. Because <laughs> yeah, I can imagine a, a cat being like, look on my works and look despair. Look on my works, you mighty and despair. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> well, let's take a quick break, and then we will look on Jemison's work. And despair? No. <laughs> Craig, Overdue this week is supported by Serial Box. Is that what NPR called the HBO of reading? Why, yes, it is. Serial Box brings you gripping stories written by best-selling and award-winning teams of writers, like in a TV show writer's room. Um, it's basically like a book, of, like a podcast in book form. Now, this that you're listening to now is like a a book in podcast form. Oh, but it's the reverse, and you can... <laughs> it's the reverse. Every like every month, they release a new chapter of this book. You can listen to it, or you can read it. Their app lets you switch seamlessly between the two with just a click, which is nice. That's pretty cool. I was looking over their, their website, and a series I wanted to talk about that looks kind of neat is um, they have one called 1776. It's a, it, it is a series that every month is going to cover a different month of the first year of the American Revolution. That's and pretty it's cool. it's going to pay attention, not just to uh, people you already know about, but also the everyday lives of folks who would have been alive during that during that time. Oh, neat! Um, so yeah, the new chapter that gets released every month. Uh, normally, you would pay ninety nine cents per episode, which is already a pretty good price. But um, 
Overdue listeners can get a discount on any first season of a Serial Box series by going to SerialBox.com and entering the promo code OVERDUE18. That's OVERDUE and then the number 18, no spaces, no nothing. Uh, that's SerialBox, S-E-R-I-A-L-B-O-X.com, and the code is OVERDUE18 to get a discount on any first season of a Serial Box series. So go check it out. Thanks, Andrew. Thanks, Serial Box. You're welcome, Craig. <laughs> Greg, we're back. We're back. Tell me about this book. Okay, Why don't cool. You? Tell uh, me what the fifth season is. So it's spring, summer, fall, winter, and then I assume this book is about a group of marketers who invents a new fifth season to sell cards or something. Yeah, sort of. So actually, um, the fifth season is a periodic apocalypse <laughs> that occurs uh, every several hundred years. Um it, this is probably not it it is probably earth because the series is called the broken earth series but it is not the earth that we know it may be the earth in our future but oh, i'm not sure earth. i only read the first book okay um but the fifth season so you find out um early in the book that the the world that these characters live in is called the stillness it is it is a Pangea. You know what a Pangea is, Andrew? I know what Pangea is. That's the big old continent that drifted apart to make all of the continents that we know and love today, right? Yes. Uh, all of the ones that we love. Like Australia and <laughs> Europe and stuff. Yeah. And um, it's unclear why it's a supercontinent. Um, maybe it wasn't before. Maybe we're in some sort of reverse Pangea situation. But that is what, I mean, there is continental drift is still a thing. Yes, that's and true. If it goes on long enough, I fully expect all the continents to just ram back into each other, but from the other direction. Yeah, um, it is. What's well, Pangea backwards? <laughs> an Angnap. Right. Can't wait for Angnap. <laughs> um. So the thing about the stillness and where these people live is that it's not actually very still. There's a lot of seismic activity. Um, they're always worried about it mm-hmm. because every couple hundred years, like something in the earth goes wrong and they have a little apocalypse that sometimes lasts like two years and sometimes it lasts like decades. Now, are you talking about like political forces? Are you talking about natural forces? No, like how, how, what kind of disaster are you referring I'm to? I'm literally talking about their view of the planet Earth, who they refer to as Father Earth, as sort of like a vengeful parent who like gladly created life because he thought it was cool. And then he created humans and they were pretty dope. And then they started extracting all of his resources and like blood and stuff. Um, and he got really mad and like tried to wipe them out or cause okay. an extinction event. Uh-huh. And so you get these things called the fifth season uh, or just seasons with a capital S. And I was going to, in the back of the book, there's an appendix for some of the ones that have happened. So the most recent one was the choking season. Then there was the boiling season and the fungus season. Um, A lot of these are like something, you know, sort of geological and real could happen. Like a bunch of magma shoots up into the sky and then it's like ash world 
for a couple years. So this is like the fifth of these apocalypse seasons. No, 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 no. It is. Or it's just like any time an apocalypse season happens, it's referred to as a fifth season. Correct, Amundo. Okay, great. Uh, My favorite one. Well, not great. No, it's pretty bad. My favorite one is called The Season of Teeth, which is there was such a there was such a like run on food that some of the more powerful like communities became cannibals. Hmm. And that gets alluded to a couple times through the book. So the the interesting thing about this whole universe is that when you know every couple generations or centuries your civilization's going to get wiped out. Like, there's sort of a futility <laughs> to how you build things um, and how you structure your, like, government. So a couple of seasons ago, the this, like, the Sanze Empire or Sans Empire came into being, and they have presided over the last several hundred years. Okay. Mostly by uniting the other regions of the supercontinent um, and by subjugating a, a race is not the right word, but a variant on the default human species, let's say. I feel like race is, is in fact, the right word. Well, yeah. <laughs> is race Now, is race not the word the book uses, but race is what is meant? Or why are you like kind of, why are you... Because I've also read, no, mostly because I've also, I want to get into a larger discussion of what race is in the book, and also I've read like summaries that just refer to them as mutants, and I don't think that's true either. Sure. Um, it is an evolutionary state of humanity, because not everyone can do it. They are called origines, orogenies. Okay. Um, it derives from the word orogeny, which is what in this book uh, it's like seismic activity, but in this book is the like magic that they can do. Where Let's they call can, it origins. Origins. They can literally shape the earth. Like they can tune into the earth and like move rocks around and cause or suppress seismic events. Like Minecraft. S- like a mix of Minecraft and being a Jedi. Okay. Like so a- Minecraft meets like. Sim Earth. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's it. And they Sim are... Sim Earth, I don't think, gets enough attention. I liked Sim Earth. Nor does Sim, Sim Earth Ant. was like a MS-DOS game that was like, oh, you like SimCity. What if we gave you like a lot of cities and you could pick like what species you wanted to evolve? Like you could make like bird people. Yeah. And then eventually the last stage of any society was to... Like literally, like to make an exodus, like to literally leave the planet in spaceships, and then and only then, like you couldn't have two sentient species at the same time. So if your one sentient species decided, okay, we've outgrown this planet, we're gonna peace, then like the bug people could rise to sentience and start building cities. So Sim Earth was pretty rad. <laughs> it sounds like it was better than Sim Ant, which was... it's also one of those. Do you remember those old old PC games? where the DRM was like you had to look something up in the manual yeah. every time you started the game and type it in. So just so that you know that you're not using your friend's copy. Right. So you can't both play at the same time. So anyway. Right. Anyway, like this is so a Minecraft and Sim Earth video games. Hello. Yes. And so these uh, origins are derogatorily referred to as uh, rogas or ragas. Mm-hmm. Um, it... It sounds 
as gross as other words that you know and don't say on purpose. Because mm-hmm. um, they are... Yeah, like you put those two Gs in there and everything. Yep. Um, yep. Because they are despised, they are. I wrote they are a despised cast of magic users. Because people, <laughs> people fear them for what they can do. Because if they get like angry or upset, they can literally cause earthquakes. Um, but they are also so like people will kill a kid if they are afraid of it being uh, an origin. Um, but you might also get taken and put into service enslavement life where people don't kill like working you. at mcdonald's no worse than that um where arby's <laughs> you work at you are like raised at this place called the fulcrum and your job is to master your abilities so that then they can boss you around and tell you to like where to go to like you know do just take care of earth business. Like you might need to go clear a landslide or you might need to go somewhere where there's a lot of scary seismic activity and like, let's make sure that volcano doesn't blow up. Sure. Um, and again, people don't like you. You're, you don't even fit into the actual cast system that does exist. So our main characters are, th- our three main characters are all, uh, origins. And they are uh, a woman in her 40s named Asun and a young girl named Demaya who gets taken from her parents uh, and has to go study at the Fulcrum. And then a a slightly older woman uh, named Cyanite who is like a functioning, she's in the system, she's owned by the Fulcrum, has to do what they're told, is like coming into her powers and she is... Sure. She's our main character for the for the arc of this book, though I think Asun becomes the main character in future books. Um so the the whole book starts with a guy you don't know just like ripping up the earth. Like he's really mad <laughs> and you don't quite know why except he is going to get revenge on on the people in power by destroying their city. And he's doing it on behalf of the other enslaved uh, origins as well, you learn. And this is like how you're introduced to how this magic works. He reaches deep and takes hold of the humming, tapping, bustling, reverberating, rippling vastness of the city and the quieter bedrock beneath it and the roiling churn of heat and pressure beneath that. Then he reaches wide, taking hold of the great sliding puzzle piece of earth shell on which the continent sits. Lastly, he reaches up for power. He takes all that, the strata and the magma and the people and the power in his imaginary hands. Everything, he holds it. He is not alone. The earth is with him. Then he breaks it. And he causes the a fifth season by ripping open the earth and killing all these people and like spilling magma onto the land. You win fewer friends with, <laughs> with magma, magma, I think. <laughs> so that is the the beginning of the book, and it intersects directly with Asun's story, um, where she is a mother of two, and the book opens with this like shockwave going around her like home city. 
but because she is a secret origin and as are her kids, they're like able to like I don't know how to describe it, but they can kind of like quiet the area around them so that the earthquake doesn't hit them. Mm-hmm. Um and her husband finds out that his son is one of these and he kills him. He's like two. So the book the, yeah. <laughs> and then he like disappears with their daughter who's much older. And so Asun kind of loses it and then has like sets out on the road to find him. Um and her story is of trying to track down her husband and her daughter. And along the way, she has to sneak out of town, Andrew, and we get to see her like really in like anime awesomeness just ice some people. Uh-oh. So if you let me okay, in your brain, how okay. do you think like earth magic would work? Like, I'm gonna tell you that uh NK Jemison did go to a workshop called Launchpad, which is a an astronomy workshop where they improve science literacy through words and media, and they have like authors go there all the time to like get give them some you know facts that they can like then kind of ignore for their stories now if you're if you're talking about earth magic as defined by and i'm getting a strong final fantasy 6 vibe from this whole yeah yes so if if you're talking about earth magic i'm thinking either it's like a quake Uh or like you can like drop boulders on people basically it's a lot of quake it's a lot of um you know that makes sense hitting the ground and then, like, causing the ground to move. Now, that tracks with my understanding of video game yes. Earth magic. Now, the byproduct, which is really dope, is that you have to uh, take kinetic energy from the world around you and channel it into the Earth. Now, this means that you are basically sapping movement and heat and energy from everything around you or any anything in your immediate vicinity. So when she does this to the people who are attacking her as she tries to leave the town, like she literally fra- like flash freezes people because she has sucked Dang. the heat out of the air. Okay. And causes a quake that destroys the village that hates her kids. Man. And then she, you know, bounces out of there. Um one thing I have not mentioned about Asun, and it struck me real hard because I was not like I hadn't even heard this about this book. All of Asun's chapters are in the second person. The narrator is talking to you almost like a dungeon master. Like, um, like you you enter a room. Yes, exits um, are north and south. Yeah, the shout dies. The flask. The shout dies in his throat as he falls. Uh, flash frozen, the last of his warm breath hissing out through clenched teeth and frosting the ground as you steal the heat from it. And then later, you're so tired. Takes a lot out of you killing so many people. Worse because you didn't do nearly as much as you could have once you got all worked up. And this narrator is uh, later revealed to be a character that you meet, but um, is like trying to tell you who you are or tell Asun who she is. Uh, and it does a lot of little things along the way <clears throat> that make the the book and the world building really effective. Because if like the book just tells you stuff or or tells you that you do stuff in the world, so you don't even really have time to like question why or or what. Um, there's a lot of really cool representation of 
uh, gender and sexuality in this book, um, like queer characters and trans characters and, and stuff that's like not, it, it's included, but it's not commented on in the same way that differences in race are commented on. Sure. Uh, I found a good quote from Jemison on this um, where she says, um, if I'm trying to depict a society that is drastically different from our own, that has drastically different cultural biases, it doesn't make sense to simply import our own stuff and assume it's universal. Um, right. we, we know there are multiple sexes, multiple expressions of gender, multiple expressions of sexuality. We've seen this in every human society. We've seen this in non-human societies. In a society that's not supposed to be Earth, obviously, we should show that. Um, and one of the first times I noticed this was actually in a second-person Asun chapter where she's talking about how, or the narrator's telling you about how, like, not a lot of people uh, know your name because you prefer to live in the background. And the butcher knows your name because she likes to flirt with you. And it's just this, like, throwaway line that helps you understand where Asun is in this, like, village's familiarity. Sure. But also just is like, yeah, the lady at the butcher shop is into you. All right, move on. Um, <laughs> and there, there's a lot of like little things like that that kind of flesh out the world in a, in a really cool yeah, way. This is getting into some like Harvest Moon kind of RPG. Territory. Yeah, let's play Harvest I'm just, Moon. I'm, I'm understanding this <laughs> book primarily through the lens of Super Nintendo RPGs. There were two things, and and as you've talked, these these keep like springing up sure. in my in my head. There were two lines from reviews, um, oh yeah, particularly reviews of um, the Obelisk Gate, the second book that uh, that come to mind as you describe stuff. And I just want to, I want you to respond to these with examples from the book. Oh, I'll do my best. Um, so that one says, uh, the end of the world becomes a triumph when the world is monstrous, even if what lies beyond is difficult to conceive for those who are trapped inside it. So basically end of the world is bad, but this world sucks anyway. And so it could actually be good for some people to just throw out the existing society and, and all that stuff. Yeah. So the, um, the two other characters that you spend time with, the book hops around between these three characters and only assumes is written in the second person. So you also meet Demaya, who's the young girl who gets taken from her family to go learn to be uh, a trained enslaved uh, Raga, essentially. Um, sure. And then the other character, Cyanite, who uh, takes that name when she becomes trained um, because it's a, it's a form of igneous rock that she has chosen as her name. Um, she is the one who like goes through a journey where she gets paired with this uh, older guy who's like, he's like a whiny mentor wizard uh, named Alabaster. And she has That's to, a good name for a whiny I know. wizard. Uh, he's like the most powerful one, but he kind of hates the system. And he's the only one when she's alone with him who's like willing to say the things about oppression that uh, many oppressed people like feel but won't voice because they're too scared or for other reasons the, the yeah the incentive not to is too great yes um and and this is where uh jemison is um yes there are characters that have like different racial uh traits or, or ethnic traits but this is the closest to like the american understanding of of race and uh 
like disempowerment and oppression where these as i said this like cast of magic users uh is essentially enslaved as weapons and alabaster who's one of the most powerful ones will privately say to cyanide it doesn't have to be this way it shouldn't be this way sure um and her growth is learning the ways in which she feels the same the ways in which she wants to take steps to uh not not just cause a literal apocalypse for uh the existing world and maybe she doesn't want to do that but what if we actually kind of as you said kind of blew up the existing societal structures that we have told ourselves are necessary to get by. Mm-hmm. Um, so her arc is, uh, it's interesting because she's like bought in enough to the system, even though she resents large parts of it. Um, but Alabaster is like challenging her to hate it even more with each passing, like part of their journey. Sure. Um, one part is that the fulcrum forces them to breed um so she on their journey has to have sex with him even though neither of them really like it so that he will have offspring that are maybe as powerful as him and then you come across this uh like node station that they use to suppress seismic activity and you think it's like oh they just like station people there and they take care of the area kind of like a earth shepherd or something and no it's like kids locked into chairs and kept under medication so that they don't live real lives, but they have enough of an instinct to like quell earthquakes. Right. And maybe some of them or most of them are Alabaster's previous kids. So he is like pissed. (laughs) And then, so their story is going off. They like have a routine job that involves like clearing out a Harbor, but of course they unlock a old magical artifact and then they get attacked and a mythological stone eater creature shows up to like save the day, sort of. Don't you just love when that happens in a fantasy book? <laughs> it's pretty cool because the like the stone eaters. I've read a little bit of Jemison talking about them. She wanted to have a mythological creature, but she wanted to make sure the reader didn't have like a schema for them. Um, like if it was an elf, we would like bring in a whole bunch of like Tolkien baggage or whatever. Right. right so. Right. This it's a race of humanoid creatures that look like living statues, which is not like other stories have dealt with that, but hers are tied directly to the like geology of her world in some cool ways. Uh-huh. Um, so, what what was the other thing that you wanted to mention? Oh, just the the other quote, and and you've already said a few things about how our protagonists are not like strong, upstanding citizens 100% of the time. Sure, yeah. But um, in another book, our protagonists would be villains. Yeah, okay. That makes sense. I assume that's just a function of what they need to do to get by in a world where apocalypses are a regular occurrence. (laughs) Yeah, so part of it is that uh, they actively work to bring about an apocalypse at one point so usually the heroes try to like save the world right so there there's an interesting inversion of that relationship where they are trying to bring about perhaps everlasting change and and, you know cycle breaking change Um, you know i'm sure that everybody in every cycle thinks that that's what they're doing well that's that's also true 
Yeah. Um, like when, when the world is literally ending, I'm sure you can tell yourself, you know what? The world is ending so hard this time that it will never have to end again. <laughs> the the uh, the thing that they talk about a lot in this book, though, is that all of the folks with Earth Magic can sense that this next season is going to be like a millennia long and there there aren't any of those on record so whether or not that's like empirically true i don't know but based on the on the style of writing i have no reason to believe that they're that they're wrong about that okay um the other thing that's interesting about them not being heroes is that like in particular you know so the the second person thing for asun is kind of neat because she is then removed from the action like of course she does like kill people and stuff happens it does get told to her slash you so mm-hmm. that she's not an active part of the story in a literal way in the same way even though she does some cool stuff um demaya is demaya's sections which i haven't talked too much about uh it's a little bit of like going off to wizard school except like you can't leave and you're forced to be there um sure. And imagine if everyone at wizard school were treated like muggles, like that kind of thing. Uh-huh. Um, so she has a couple like growing up in this awful magic school stuff going on. Um, but she, so that, that doesn't quite track to, to the hero's journey stuff. Um, Cyanite is fascinating because we also see her become a mother, but not a like, particularly into it one (laughs) we uh see her make some like bad choices or or objectively bad but in context wholly understandable sure choices about her child that like are sort of reprehensible but given the i think i think that that is like all the any parent who is like like if you think about a single mother or who with a lot of, with not a lot of money or like anybody yeah. who's trying to raise kids in difficult circumstances is going to do things which to outsiders of means believe is like bad parenting or sure. like it's an, you know it's not the best parenting that it could possibly be but <laughs> and it's like i don't know i feel like that ignores context a lot of the time and then you just have to be careful about telling people their business at, at pretty much any point you that's know? that's true she enca- she encounters characters who try to tell her her business and you know jemison has a good quote from from an interview where she says you don't often see um you know that they were that they always weren't interested in having kids they weren't always great moms you don't often see that they are people beyond being mothers that motherhood is just one aspect of their life and not the totality of it um sure. she goes on to talk about you know, not being a mother herself, and maybe she made some mistakes as an author. She's actually pretty upfront about that in a lot of her writing about her own writing, um, which I certainly appreciate. Um, and now I want to... Can I spoil something about this book, Andrew? Nope. No? Nope. Are you sure? All right. End of the podcast. <laughs> end of the podcast. No. No, just spoil your thing. What do, what, what do you got? All of these characters are the same person. Like literally the same person? Yes. So I've I've managed to do what the book did, but I'm not as good as the book in being Twist. vague enough about the details of these three plot lines that only a little way only a, 
eh, not a little ways, a substantial ways in the book that I realized that they were not in the same timeline. Huh. And then uh, when Demaya reaches a certain age and skill set in her training, she takes the name Cyanite. And like that's a chapter end, and you're like, what? That's what? pretty cool. And then you're kind I certainly was then kind of waiting for the shoe to drop of how would Asun also be them. Sure. Um, it's pretty well done. You actually don't get an outright confession there, but instead another character named Tonki that she has met on the road turns out to be someone from Demaya's chapters, like that she met as a kid um, who's been like tracking her for years. And after like, the cataclysmic events that that conclude cyanite story you learn that she went underground and went into hiding which is how she then led led this life as a soon where she was trying to have no one find her mm-hmm. um so there is like sort of a rejecting the call part of the hero narrative after cyanite's you know big uh big scene that is really the climax of this book that sets up a soon to be like the hero moving forward right Um, i don't know how the other books if they handle anything similar to this so if if i personally like personally if you've read the rest of these series and just kind of want to tell me a little bit like shoot me an email but don't spoil the rest of the books (laughs) (laughs) um but i felt like i I needed you probably should just read them yeah i i definitely wanted to uh spoil it on the show because sometimes we can talk about a book without having to do that and sometimes uh it's kind of part of what the deal is and i i think it's part of what the deal is in particular because it shows these three women um who are each oppressed in different ways each at different stages of you know relating to motherhood um each at different stages of figuring out who they are and who they want to be um, both like in a literal, like what is my identity way and in you know more figurative ways. Um, and so the, the collapsing of them is very satisfying. And, sure. and of course it also like plays into just general like geology, like refraction themes um, like crystals and cool stuff like that. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. I was just really, impressed with it because i did not i don't know maybe other people saw it's one of those where it's like did everyone see that coming because i didn't and that was pretty great (laughs) (laughs) um and then you realize that the the narrator is this stone eater boy that has taken a liking to a soon um named hoa and you don't quite know what he's up to nobody really knows what the stone eaters are up to and like why they like the orgy, the origins, um, or how they like they seem to attach to them like one one to one, but no one really knows why or, or what they're up to. Again, I sure. I imagine that that will crop up in in future books, um, and then the the kind of last like big world building thing is something happened. I think it was our fault, Andrew. I don't know what it was. Like you and me? I think 21st century humanity did something. Oh, okay. I thought you meant like us specifically. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, who knows? Um, But 
they they refer to dead sieves like one word like one like word jammed together yeah um and what their technology was or wasn't and what their uh you know architecture was and wasn't and they did something as i said earlier to like hurt father earth and now he's on the war path mm-hmm. and we're we're screwed forever i guess sure or maybe not if maybe we can <laughs> if maybe we can cause the apocalypse to end all apocalypses mm-hmm. um any any other questions from stuff you've read I have like a couple like quick hits, and then that's probably gonna wrap. No, me up. just just do your just do your quick hits. Like, it, if we decide to continue doing this series, I feel like it will. These will be the kinds of conversations that will be more interesting if we have both read the book. And okay. I do occasionally, like I I think this was the case with Americana last week too. Is that sometimes our model doesn't work as well because we just want it's less yeah. us talking about the questions the book raises and more just you telling me what the questions are yeah that's so, fair that's fair not that that's bad like not to undermine our whole deal but, <laughs> but if we were going to talk about the other the rest of this trilogy i think i would i think i would want it to be a conversation rather than like sure just you explaining it to me just because it, it sounds so fascinating is a hackneyed word yeah like but that's i wish accurate. i could think of a better one but yeah <laughs> um so i will say that there's two like little world building things that i noticed and i want to get your thoughts on them um, okay hit me one is that there's some there's real cursing in this book and then there's like world spe- battlestar galactica cursing. then there's some battlestar galactica cursing <laughs> and so like one is that instead of saying like a god in the way that you would say like uh like god damn something they mm-hmm. say uh earth like uh evil earth, earth or earth mm-hmm. fires or like yeah i guess if the earth if the world ended like every 500 years you'd be pretty mad everybody's pretty (laughs) mad and antagonistic to the earth so that seems to check they also use rust as their fracking like this is so rust and bad or what the rust (laughs) just pretty good are there are there other do you have any examples other than frack that you don't like andrew because i feel like frack initially Frack sucks. It, I thought it was cool for the miniseries, and then over time, no. But then, and then, like everybody started actually saying it, and you're like, <laughs> like we, we're not. You know, the only reason they invented cusses is because they're on TV, right? Like, yeah, and they can't say the actual cusses. Like you're in real life, you can say real cusses. Why won't you say the real ones? Yeah. Why do we all gotta say frack? Yeah, but like I feel like just, it works in like and also like it works in I the think, good place I think, though. I think Battlestar Galactica was winding down at the same time as actual like blowing up mountains fracking was rising in prominence, oh. and so frack became like a different kind of bad that's word. that's a different thing because like bad for the environment instead of just bad for my ears. I don't know. <laughs> also, maybe bad for your ears. I don't know. The good place gets away with it. Because I like the good place better than Battlestar Galactica. Okay. Is one reason is one reason why It's just one reason why. I'm very glad that you're finally on this good place train. Yeah, we can talk about. This, I'm almost at but... the end of the train or at the current stop. Um, the other thing I want to mention is 
the there's some naming stuff that is not like a hard and fast rule, but I noticed it and was like, is that a real thing? And then I found some like threads from like linguists talking about this book. So save a few exceptions. There are not too many female characters or female identifying characters in the book that have a like soft vowel ending their name. Um, okay. So like Demaya is actually an exception, but you have like Esun and Nasun and a couple other uh, women who have like hard consonant ends to their names. And there are a number of male characters whose last name or whose names end with like A. So like Lerna and Jija and Shafa. And when you run that through like your English language biases, um, mm-hmm. or a lot of romance language biases anyway, uh, it is an inversion of gender tropes that's really cool. Um, and I don't know. I just noticed it and was like, is that a thing? And was pleased to find like actual scholarship on it as a thing. Because it does, yeah. if you're not thinking about it or, or thinking about what the book is doing, it can be easy to like assume things about these characters based like on those names and like then you realize that you're doing it and you're like well that's dumb that's not helpful to anyone mm-hmm. sure um, and so the ways in which Jemison this goes all the way back to what you were saying at the top of the show about the Hugo stuff Andrew the ways in which Jemison uh, is very pointedly dealing with uh, race and otherness and then letting a and like either letting a whole bunch of other stuff slide, um, but not just either, but like deliberately being cool with a bunch of stuff and like uh, representation, right? That's kind of what that's what I'm saying awkwardly, but mm-hmm. <laughs> being very being very purposeful without it being what the book is about, if that makes sense. Yeah, sure. Um, and it was it was it's kind of masterful like it is because it is so interwoven into just this opening book that is doing a lot of heavy lifting from a world building perspective to have it do that for these characters and like casually have a trans character and casually have uh bi characters and have it just be part of who they are without it being a, a like part of the struggle that the book is already dealing with yeah um it's fascinating it is just really cool to see so uh that's the fifth season cool uh, i hope we don't have a season of teeth in our own world coming up i hope that there's not like a sixth season because that would be pretty <laughs> oh, that would gosh. be even worse no thank you um what else was i gonna say I was going to end know. the show. Yeah, you were going to do the show ending thing that we've done. Uh, for five just, years? Just checking my watch. Oh, for five years. <laughs> <laughs> if you want to tell us what you were doing five years ago when we launched a podcast, you can hit us up at OverduePod at gmail.com or on Twitter and Facebook at OverduePod. Uh, some folks responding to us about last week's episode uh, include Dion, Beth, Becky, uh, Scarlett, Olivia, Glenn, Adam, Andrew, Melissa, Yerbaswena, Rebecca, Nick, Megalophonus, Matt, Josie, Ninth Melody, Graham, New Year's Steve, Carolyn, Steam Cavalier, Aaron, and Jennifer. Thanks, y'all. Andrew, if folks want to know more about the show, where should they go? 
They should go to OverduePodcast.com, which is our internet website. Up there we have links to iTunes, Google Play, and RSS. Those are all ways you can subscribe to the show and get new episodes when they drop every Monday. If you subscribe in iTunes, please do rate and review us because it helps us rise up them charts and it makes us feel better about ourselves, which is something I think just everybody needs nowadays. Mm-hmm. Um, we've also got a new listener page. We've got all of our back episodes. We've got Amazon links to the books that we have read and are going to read. I finally updated that page with our February books today, Craig. Whoops. We dropped the ball on that one. I did all the other updates, though. <laughs> no, I know, I know, I know. I'm not, I'm just saying I am indicting us both. As it should be. <laughs> yes. Um, if you want to buy, if you want to read along, if you click on those links, we get a little cut of that. And also you get a book. So like we both win. It's win-win. Um, what you read next week, buddy? I am reading Kindred by Octavia Butler. That's that's a book I've read before. I'll be interested to know what you think. Yeah. And then um, for our bonus episode for February, we just recorded yesterday, actually, our episode on The Crane's Dance by Meg Howery. It's about ballet is the short version, I guess. <laughs> yeah. Ballet, sisters, and life. But our uh, our patrons should be getting that this week, I imagine. Yeah. And then everybody else is going to get it a week after that. So be be on the lookout for that. Um, okay, we good? We good? We're good. That's it. All right, everybody. Thank you so much for listening. Until next week, try to be happy. That was a HeadGum Podcast.